0: The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language.
3: Hey, Gabfest listeners, this is Julia Turner back in our New York studio. And before we kick off our Montreal Live show, I have a little bit of business for you. We have launched a new program at Slate called Slate Plus. It's a membership program that offers benefits of all sorts to our most devoted readers and listeners. And there are a particular set of perks for Culture Fest fans that I wanted to let you know about. If you sign up for the program, which costs five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, you get an ad free version of the podcast so you can listen to us straight through without interruptions. We have a database of all of the endorsements we've made on the show going way back. So if you're one of those people who emails us, saying what was that book dana recommended about college graduations this database should be able to help you find those uh those distant recommendations and endorsements and finally we've got bonus segments every week we're going to do a special segment that is just for listeners so um steve what have we got this week
0: so i live unbelievably door-to-door ghent new york to montreal Canada only about it's a distance of only about four hours and if you you know maybe go a tiny smidge over the speed limit I bet you could do it in 345 so I drove to Montreal and one incentive to huge incentive to do that is my very favorite spot to sit and have a cup of coffee and or a glass of wine and maybe some oysters and some pastries happens to be in Vergennes Vermont which is about halfway plus along the way to Montreal And uh, so I decided to bring a mic and a Marantz tape recorder with me and speak to the remarkable people who started this improbably beautiful an elegant little um, coffee shop in the middle of Vermont.
3: Ooh, I am, A, super excited about your shift from uh, analytical podcast host to roving podcast reporter. That's going to be really fun to listen to. And also, I'm psyched to hear more about this place, which has been part of podcast lore for years now. So that's this week's Slate Plus bonus segment. So again, it's Slate Plus, five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. If you sign up for the annual membership on top of all these benefits, you get a mug to sign up and find out more, go to slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Now we're going to zip back over to Montreal and our live
0: show. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest live from Montreal edition.
1: All right, I've been appointed the French translator, so I'll just say, Je suis Etienne Metcalf, et ceci, c'est le Slate Culture Gab Fest. What is it? En direct de Montréal.
0: It's Wednesday, May 7th, 2014. On today's show, Orphan Black, it's Canadian, it's television, and it's awesome. I've never said that sentence before. Awesome <laughs> Hate Ship, is Forgive Us An American Indie starring Kristen Wiig But it's based on the short story Hate Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage Which is Canadian And it is also awesome <laughs> Et finalement We are joined by Carl Wilson to discuss his re-released book-length essay Let's Talk About Love It was once subtitled A Journey to the End of Taste And both he and it are magnifique <laughs> All right, enough, right? Um, <laughs> joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia.
3: Hi, Steve.
0: And of course, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. Orphan Black is a sci fi and super sexy television series with an implausible twist at its center. It's made in Canada. Additionally, it stars Tatiana Maslany As a young and saucy no-account Who grew up in foster homes And is discovering, much to her dawning horror That she is only one of several identical clones Thus, Ms. Masley's performance Iterates out into several identities And accents and personalities And is magnificent to kick off the show uh, And to score some much-needed money Her character assumes in the pilot episode The identity of the first of her facsimiles Whom she encounters Let's, Andy, let's listen to a clip from the show
1: I just want some answers. Are you out of your mind? You've shown your face in front of my children. How did you find me? German had to redress. I've, I've got what you wanted. I've got a briefcase. Idiot. Do you even know who you're talking to? Hmm? Where is Beth? Uh, she's dead. What?
2: sorry she killed herself no
1: no no she wouldn't do that that's impossible
2: I'm sorry I saw her do it no that can't be I can explain Okay. my name's Sarah I don't care who you are why Lord why
1: me I never wanted any part of this do I wear a huge kidney sign on my back please just tell me who are we to each other
0: Just tell me, Julia, who are we to each other?
3: <laughs> well, before we get too far into the show, I'm curious, because here we are in Canada talking about this Canadian show. How many of you guys have seen Orphan Black? <laughs> applause. Applause. Yeah, make us much noise. I'm going to call that like 40% of the room, 50% of the room.
0: It sounds like 40%. How many of you like it? <laughs> Lovely and enthusiastic 40%.
3: All right. So in that clip we just heard, uh, we heard the amazing Tatiana Maslany playing... The, the prime character of the show, a uh, sort of ne'er do well called Sarah, surprising one of her clones, a soccer mom called Allison, and talking about the suicide of a third clone, a sort of prim cop called Beth um, so i 'm sure that was very easy to follow for those of you who hadn 't seen the show, <laughs> but one thing I think you do get a sense of is the amazing virtuosity of this performance, right so the the prime character sarah is um, it 's somewhat complicatedly set up is a Cockney-ish accented immigrant From Britain but the show is set In kind of an anonymous Canada They're using Canadian currency it's shot in Toronto Doesn't explicitly make a big deal About being in Toronto but you get A sense of, of how precise she is With the different accents just from Hearing them I think and if you're watching And can see as well I find the Performance to be totally mesmerizing right I mean she's not it's not outmoded um, outlandish wild mannerisms that she just seems to inhabit these totally different versions of herself I found it very easy to forget the stuntiness of the performance what did you guys think
0: oh I don't feel that that it's a stunty performance at all I totally agree with you like, it's a gri- gripping performance uh, I love the premise of the show uh, and intend to follow through with it unrelenting, unrelentingly to the end of the second season I'm only a little bit in, but what I'm picking up from the critical consensus, Dana, is that her performance is magnific- magnificent, truly magnificent, uh, and makes the show absolutely worth wa- watching. However, maybe the surrounding apparatus of the plot hasn't risen yet to the standard that she's set in her performance, which is always always the challenge in such things. What do you make of the show so, so far?
1: Well, What I've seen of it I love, and I agree I want to stick with it. I see that the criticism of the show could be that although the performance itself is incredibly impressive and not merely a stunt that it really is built completely around the personality of this woman Tatiana Maslany and her ability to shapeshift and morph and that to me some of the um, how would you describe it the deep mythology of the show I mean it is one of those shows like the X-Files or like Buffy the Vampire Slayer where there, there are all kinds of sort of um, currents you know you have to watch many episodes in a row to see these, these worlds being slowly built and I won't get into what all of them are so as not to spoil but you know there start to be different Parties of uh, belief systems People that are against the uh, the cloning technology That's led to the cloning of this woman You know, religious cults come into play And there's sort of all these ideologies That seem to shift Nefarious scientists Always got to have some nefarious scientists in a show like this Right, and that takes a quite a while to reveal itself It's quite a few episodes in that you start to see What's the actual origin of this cloning story So if you're somebody who likes shows with deep mythologies Like The X-Files and Buffy You will have the patience to stick with that But this show does not feel like How can I express this? It's being made up as it goes along, which in a way suits the policy of the main character who's sort of this MacGyver, right? Whatever situation she finds herself in, Sarah, we're talking about the principal British incarnation of the the clone club, she finds some crazy way out of it with whatever she's got on hand. And so that MacGyver element is part of what makes the show fun, but to me it also feels like the writers are MacGyvering it a little bit, so Mm -hmm. I worry what's going to happen in the second season, which just started.
0: I know, vis-a-vis the evil scientists, wouldn't it be great if as a twist in a show like this there were... Benign literary humanists behind the, clo- <laughs> behind the cloning scheme You know, tenured Chaucerians Decide to clone The one pretty person Who enrolled in the program anyway. uh, Julia, one of the things I would love to talk about About the show is the Canadianness of it Not that I know what exactly that word would signify But let me get it from a funny angle Which is, when you read about Other film cultures That as insecure Americans We maybe over esteem A little bit Um, What they were always Responding to In American filmmaking Was it's uh, And in all of American popular art Was it's incredible instinct It's its reliance And you know uh, As Americans We might think of uh, Over reliance On Pure instinct The ability to piece together films So that they flowed They paced It was something somehow That that found its way Or was already in the American bloodstream In some respects When you watch the show It's wonderful And one of the things I like about it As a self-loathing American Is that it just doesn't quite feel American It feels as though It is coming from someplace else Though you would be hesitant To be able to put your finger confidently On where that was Or what that quality was Do Do you agree? It has some feel That it just doesn't feel like It was shot in Anaheim or Burbank
3: I'm not sure I agree with that that much (laughs) I mean, I think the show The the show that this reminds me most closely of I think the Buffy analog uh, Is a good one And I'm a huge fan of Buffy Dana, so I like that comparison The show it also reminds me of is Alias Which is the show How many of you guys saw Alias? You know, which was the J.J. J. Abrams breakout show that starred uh, Jennifer Garner. Well, at Beyond Felicity, but it, it was one of his early shows that starred Jennifer Garner in a series of wigs. She was actually one person wearing lots of different wigs, and not clones of herself. But the conceit that one talented actress plays many different versions of herself has to get out of crazy situations while fighting various mysteriously named shadowy forces. It's it's a very similar structure for the show,
0: mm.
3: and I actually sort of wish the show played up its Canadianness a little bit more. Um, I think. We have a slightly strange view of it filtered through hearing about the show and watching the show in America. Because it comes to us on BBC America, which is a show that airs a lot of British imports, I think there's sort of a limited awareness that it even is Canadian. There's kind of references of taking trains to New York and, and to Chicago and people flying to Detroit, so you have a sense that this, you know, they're not actually in the UK or anything, but it's a little bit placeless. Basically, I think this is a problem in the show generally. There's incredible specificity in Tatiana Maslany's performances. I mean, it really feels like each of these clones is a very grounded, specific, fascinating character. But the world is a little fuzzy. Like, the boyfriend of Beth, the cop, is kind of like a blurry blonde blank. The cop world that she inhabits, the sort of cop procedural that the show becomes part of the time when she's pretending to be Beth, this clone that has committed suicide, is a little bit vague. Um, And I think, similarly, the Toronto or the quasi-Toronto that the show is sent in feels a little bit vague to me. And mm.
1: it's hard to know whether that's a deliberate artistic choice or whether it's a kind of an attempt to obscure the Canadian-ness to make it kind of more globally appealing on the market. You have to look hard. Occasionally you'll spot an Ontario license plate driving by, but otherwise there aren't really any well, geographical markets. And there's a stack of $75,000 that are red. So that's, <laughs>
3: <laughs> so that's a real tell.
1: That in itself is a novelty. Somebody getting a briefcase of money that isn't green. You never see
0: that. <laughs> no, I love it. Okay, so for our working definition of Canadianness is fuzzy and red money. I like it. But that,
1: that brings me to a question actually about the vagueness of the other characters, particularly the male characters, and this boyfriend who the main character finds herself suddenly thrown into a relationship with she 's essentially pretending to be someone else, one of her clones, and so she has to get up to speed on her what her job used to be, what her relationship used to be. I think that is all a great twist, but i 've read in several places, and I wonder what you guys think about this that this show has a, a man problem, that essentially it has the reverse of the longstanding problem of females being underwritten and undercharacterized in pop culture, and that all the men are boring, stupid laugh. And the question is, I think that that's pretty much incontestable we, that all the men have boring We have a third
0: definition for Canadian. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but so my question to you is, did, did that bother you? Do you find it to be, to be true or not? Do you think it's it's deliberate on the part of the show's creators, who are men, both of them, but who have created, a, I think, a profoundly feminist. Well, work. L-
0: let me agree with you and also uh, add a little asterisk, asterisk, which is that um, uh, the performance of Felix, the foster brother. Of the main character I love I, I mean I could see Some people might Feel the scenery Being chewed a little bit But I
1: think, I think the, the idea is that he's, he's, he's a gay character And that yeah. all the straight men Are the ones That oh, are the okay. boring Stupid lads
0: A fourth <laughs> definition of the media, or, or 3B I'd say <laughs> Um No, I I haven't picked that up on the show necessarily, but I'm a boring, underwritten stereotype. So (laughs) I identify with all the men in the show.
3: (laughs) Now I know why. I guess the question, I think, is whether it's a conscious choice on the part of the show's creators and sort of part of the feminist underpinnings of the show, or it's part of the kind of MacGyver fly-by-night nature, and the men are just, like, obstacles that you must vault over, and therefore they don't have full characters. I tend to lean a little bit more towards the former theory. I think... I think the gender politics of this show are fascinating. And I think they the fact that the show is kind of fun and a little bit of like a B-movie style show in the spirit of Buffy or in the spirit of Alias. I mean, Buffy and Alias are two shows that had most interesting commentary on gender politics of maybe any two TV shows I've seen in the last ten to fifteen years. I mean it doesn't just because the show is goofy doesn't mean it can't have smart things to say about gender. And actually I think some of the smartest gender commentary in pop culture sometimes does come through goofy venues. So I guess I'm, I'm going to wait and see just how blank the men remain forever. But I'm, I'm kind of okay with the blank template because I'm assuming it's
0: part of a strategy for mm. now
1: yeah I mean it's, it feels like part of the show's language and so insofar as I'm interested to see how the show establishes that language I'll, I'll stick with it
0: okay I'm here uh, by going to interject and tell you how much fun you're having in Montreal we've just spoken for 13 minutes didn't it feel like five <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing the show is Orphan Black it's in if, you're in if you happen to be in America it's on something called BBC America in Canada it's presumably you know falling off of trees like ripe fruit <laughs> check it out let us know what you think at w www.facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our sponsor. It is. What do we have?
3: Very appropriate for our venue here at a books festival. Our sponsor this week is audible.com. Audible, as I think our listeners know, is the internet's leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment, and they have Thousands of titles available More than 150,000 titles Current bestsellers, classics Pretty much anything you might want to read It's available on Audible They also have a special deal for our listeners If you sign up for a 30-day trial, free trial You'll get one free audiobook So you can kind of check out the service See how audiobooks fit into your life And sign up for this one, one book a month monthly deal uh, If you guys are podcast listeners You should try listening to audiobooks If you're a podcast listeners who do not listen to audiobooks That is a think of the blank Noiseless hours in your life that you could fill with audiobooks. We are currently in the process of putting together the Slate Culture Gabfest bucket list. This is our list of books that, if you have not read them, Steve will not sit down and have a drink with you at a bar. He'll just will just get the Heisman stiff arm, and uh, maybe I need a hockey analogy instead of a football. A
0: I will high stick you.
3: Yes. Watch out. So uh, we have an addition to our Culture Gabfest bucket list this week, Steve.
0: Yeah, we do. Um, we, so we've been pioneering this. Um, it's both pretentious and utterly false theory of art, uh, which states that there are certain dyads, and one is those dyads are stark, and they force a choice upon you, and that choice then tells you something about who you are. So the m- most obvious ones would be, like a really obvious one from, from rock and roll would be Lennon or McCartney, or you could say Beatles or the Stones. Another one would be Beethoven or Mozart. Another one would be... Kulstoy or Dostoevsky. So we came up with the Austin and the Brontes and and I guess we'd say maybe you could, or you could say from the Brontes, you could say Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre. This is an incredible wind-up. Just, just, to make sure I have no wind left for the final two segments, and to say that um, I think at the end of the day, when you do all the winnowing away, it's Jane Eyre by a country mile. I, I, I just without any competition. Julia, what do you, what do you think? I, I, just, I, mean, I love Austin. I adore Austin. But there's something about the brooding, you know, um, passionate interiors of, of, of young Jane Eyre. Julia's
1: in Austin, team Austin, aren't you? I'm totally team
3: Austin, but you're not going to goad me into saying something negative about Jane Eyre because it's not really a binary, and that is a great book. <laughs> you might just goad me into putting Jane Austen on in a later week, but that, that wouldn't be the worst outcome for our listeners.
0: No, it's true. Anyway, it is available unabridged on um, audible.com. It's a touch-and-go battle unto the death between Susan Erickson and Emma Messinger and Juliette Stephen for who reads it best. Um, but they'll all be whisper-synced to your voice-ready device instantly, or one of them will be when you make the choice and tip the balance, and one of them prevails as the best reader of Jane Eyre.
3: So that's Jane Eyre. Uh, For those of you who have mysterious secrets in your upstairs attics, check it out. For those of you who didn't catch that reference, definitely check it out. Um, And uh, to get our Audible deal, go to audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, Steve, what's next?
0: Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. A woman approaches a station agent to inquire about shipping some furniture by rail. The man would like to flirt with her, but she treats him as little more than an information machine. He tries to read her, then decides she reminds him of a nun he once saw on television. Quote, This nun had smiled once in a while to show that her religion was supposed to make other people happy. But most of the time she looked out at her audience as if she believed that other people were mainly in the world for her to boss around. I think that's an extraordinary sentence, and when it, you read it in the context of the Alice Monroe story that it's from, it is an extraordinary, it hits you as an extraordinary sentence. The question I think we're going to grapple with in the following segment is how do you possibly transfer the virtues, the many strange and diverse virtues of that sentence, from the page up onto the screen? And maybe the quick answer is you don't. Hateship, friendship, courtship, loveship, marriage is a short story, a long short story by Alice Monroe. In my humble opinion, she deserved the Nobel Prize for this story alone. It has been adapted into an indie movie by director Liza Johnson and the screenwriter Mark Poirier. It stars Kristen Wiig, Guy Pearce, and Nick Nolte. <laughs> He's so Nick Nolte in this movie, he embodies the Nick Nultiness of Nick Nolte more than any other Nick Nolte. Uh, no matter how many Chaucerians uh, clone him. The usual, drill f- <laughs> uh, the usual drill is for us to play a clip from a movie such as this one, but we can convey the tone of the film simply by saying... Pregnant pause It is so filled with pregnant pauses, Dana We couldn't really find a, 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 you know, a, a credibly listenable Segment from the movie, it sounds like I'm running The movie down, it's really that I love the short story And we'll get to all of that, I want to ask you What do you, what do you think, did you like the movie?
1: Yeah, well it's, it is a very tall task To adapt Alice Munro, it has been done Very well by Sarah Polly and Away From Her The movie from a few years ago that was an adaptation Of, a, of a, another story from this same Collection by Munro, I think this is a less Successful adaptation, but when you've got a story this good to work with and a character this good and an actress as good as Kristen Wiig is in this part, I think I, it's still something that's really worth seeing. But there's just, there's something about the complexity of that story, particularly in its shifts of points of view, right? You talk about how it starts off with, you know, what the station agent is thinking about the furniture shipping woman. I mean, that kind of perspectival shift is pretty hard to capture on film and so the movie doesn't really try. It puts the order of events in chronological order where in the story there are these all these sort of mad skips among generations and time frames. And, uh, and it's sort of order it you know in a more mm-hmm. Hollywood friendly way, I would say. But that said, it it really does have something Monrovian about it in its um in its spareness and its use, as you were saying, of, of silence. You know, it's not a movie that tries to cram every minute with information and event, and I liked that about it.
0: Uh, Julia there has been a slow, stately unfolding of my love for Alice Monroe over the last few years, and it's just growing and growing and growing and deepening and deepening and deepening. Um, some of the sentences from that story, I, I just read the story for the first time yesterday. Uh, you know, the house was full of callous desertion, of deceit. Um, you know, Reading them doesn't make them sound fancy because they're not fancy. They're just perfect, especially in the context of the story. I know that the story has recently come to mean something to you. You read it in a book group. Talk a little bit about the story and whether you... We're pleased to find it up on screen with Nick Nick Nolte.
3: (laughs) I'm always pleased to find Nick Nolte on screen. I hadn't read very much Alice Munro until prompted (laughs) by her winning the Nobel Prize. My book group uh, read this collection of stories. And we all came into book group and were just like, what the hell have we been reading? This woman is so much better (laughs) than, than anything else we've read. Um, and and we were reading some pretty good books, and and so I was amused. I read uh, Laurie Moore reviewed the the collection for the New York Review of Books when it initially came out in the early two thousands, and she quoted another writer who said the stories of Alice Munro make everyone else's look like the work of babies.
1: <laughs> Which is literally, I mean, I thought it was striking that that was that, Ethan Canin, right? The yeah. author Ethan Canin. Yeah, said exactly.
3: That. I thought it was striking that it was the exact same response of like she just is operating on such a sophisticated level that you marvel at what she accomplishes and yet her work is not it's not showy it's not flashy the prose is not look at me prose it's just incredibly lucid and lucid into what it feels like to be in a character's mind i mean just the way she's able to convey interiority in fiction is mind blowing Obviously, film is in some ways a medium that is very good at interiority, right? It's all about evoking a mood and putting us in the perspective of a character and helping us get a saturated, multi-sensory sense of the world around them and how it affects them, which can evoke a sense of what it would be like to be inside their minds, but it's much less direct, I think, um, than Alice Monroe. I mean, you know, one tactic is voiceover, which thankfully this movie does not employ, right? But we're left to read a lot on Kristen Wiig's face, which... Mm. I'm curious what you thought of it. I at Moments loved her performance and at moments didn't. Um, I, I,
0: I'll address that in one second, but first I have to radically disagree with you. I mean, film is a uniquely terrible medium for conveying human interiority, right? I mean, it, it, unless you do a voiceover, which is always considered ham-handed... And, and kind of a failure of the screenwriter's art in some way. It's very good at entering your interior, interiority. That's, that's, the technolo- that's the design of the technology. But the, to me, what always strikes me about movies, which my, you know, my, one of my favorite art forms, I and mean, I love movies, but, the, but there's this incredible chasm between its ability to sort of enter the theater of your mind and the inaccessibility of the minds of the people... Um, uh, who are thinking and acting on the screen which literature of course can do it is the th- signal thing that literature does do what I will say is that, is that films do create a common reality between the performers that has to be living in the moment as it's captured on, on, on camera, which does make you think about how pathologically ill film actors must be because they're filming out of sequence. They're often running from a trailer and kind of memorizing their lines at the last moment. And then the, the fact that they can create emotional truth on the spot, on command, is actually kind of a terrifying skill. Um, <laughs> when you think about it, I would say that Monroe's defining virtue as a right... I mean, I, I don't know enough of a work to say that as pompously as I was about to, but let me say tentatively... <laughs> that I think the defining virtue of her work for me so far is that it's kind of like boiling a frog, especially in that story. You know, the whole thing about boiling a frog is, is you don't throw a frog in boiling water. It just bounces right out. So what you do is you stick it in lukewarm water, pleasant water, and you bring the temperature up slowly, 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 and the frog is sitting there thinking, I'm taking a nice bath. I'm taking a nice <laughs> bath. I'm so relaxed. This is great. I'm dinner. <laughs> and, um, and that's how I felt about that story is these, these slow accretions of details um, the climax in a kind of crushing pathos, I just don't think you can do that on screen. That said, now I'll answer your question.
3: <laughs> All right, I was waiting.
0: I thought she was good in the movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, I have I have one blanket response to this idea that film cannot communicate interiority. I mean, it's, there's no question that there's a different language of communication of interiority, but film has the close-up, right? I mean, film has the human face. It has something that literature doesn't have that... You know that, that can go a long way towards.
0: Le visage humain.
1: <laughs> Et bien oui. Et bien oui. And and I think in that sense, Kristen Wiig is she's a little bit miscast in this role. If you read the story, Johanna Perry, the character she plays, who's a spinster and a housekeeper and someone who spent her whole life in the shadow of her employers and essentially sort of has no I don't know what you'd call it sort of she has interiority but she has no sort of self in a way. It's, it's strange to see Kristen Wigg playing that role when we associate her with so many comic characters and you know, she's got this goofy mobile face. And So there are moments that I sort of felt maybe she shouldn't have been cast. She's also a little too pretty and too young to play this this plain middle-aged spinster from the story. But I thought she was a, really a revelation and fantastic in the role. It made me excited. This along with another movie she recently made, The Skeleton Twins, coming out later this year with Bill Hader where he plays a dramatic role as well made me look forward to a, to a Career of Kristen Wiig As a dramatic actress
3: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Alright well the movie Is called uh, Hateship Loveship uh, Show of hands How many people Have read the Alice Monroe story That it's based on
3: Clap Don't show of hands Clap
0: Alright those of you Who haven't You're in for an Absolute treat It's amazing Alright moving on Bring up Mr. Carl Wilson Welcome. Before we properly introduce Carl and get into the segment, I thought it would be important maybe, Andy, if maybe we could set the mood a little to something, maybe a little obscure, maybe tres team, you know, maybe even something placating to Dana and her nerves because she hasn't had her morning (laughs) eye opener yet, you know, maybe a little Malaysian bird song or something. What do you have?
3: Get more, Yeah.
0: Get more. Oh my God!
1: You're not letting her belt it out. We have to provide the crescendo ourselves.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh dear. Carl Wilson was the pop critic for the Toronto Globe and Mail. He has migrated virtually, at least, south, and now, lucky us, he is Slate's music critic. His book, Let's Talk About Love, has just been reissued, reissued with a new sous-titre. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've I failed French so many times, oh my God. I'm going to do it again tonight. And appended with essays, it's now appended with essays from Ann Powers, James Franco, Nick Hornby, and others. The book simmered up into many and diverse consciousnesses over the past several years, deservedly so, but recently, upon reissue, seemed sort of bursting or ready to burst, again deservedly. Um, Carl, uh, not an hour ago, a random stranger... Um, pointed to it in the lobby of the hotel and said, oh, it's a classic. I think it's fair to say now, it's a classic. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it is actually fair to say so. And as charming as that rando was, it, <laughs> I think he's here, actually.
3: <laughs> the,
0: the rando just waved from the audience. <laughs> oh, he didn't come. Okay, well, I'm free to slag. <laughs> no, he really anyway. didn't. <laughs> um, uh, even better than some rando. Um, Lord tweeted to let Carl and the whole world know That she is both devouring and savoring the book Carl, congratulations on the tweet On the book On James Franco I mean, I'm starstruck Mostly for the people you know and are around But a little bit for you too (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show It's wonderful to be here Um, uh, Let me quote very briefly One of my many favorite sentences from it Much of this book is about reasonable people Carting around cultural assumptions That make them assholes to millions of strangers before we get to the question of taste, good taste, bad taste, and Celine Dion, uh, let's start somewhere else. Let's start with um, the nineteen. I think it's the nineteen ninety-seven Academy Awards. Carl, explain to me how it was those Academy Awards planted the seed for this book.
2: Yeah, well, it was sort of. I you know I lived in Montreal in the nineties, and and so Celine was ubiquitous here, um, as she was everywhere, but particularly here, I think and so I had a vague awareness and it was kind of during a phase of my music listening life in which the radio didn't really play any role and TV didn't play any role and I was, I was pretty wrapped up in my cultish world of indie rock and experimental jazz and things like that so I had this awareness of Cillian as this, as this pop powerhouse but the Oscars, the year that Titanic came out became this kind of staging ground for a battle between the forces that I felt Cillian represented and my side um, because unusually um, An indie type um, Elliot Smith Was nominated the same year um, For the music From *Goodwill Hunting And the staging of it Couldn't been, have been More supportive Of my sense Of beleagueredness In pop culture that, yeah. In that Celine um, As you may well remember sort of appeared as if she were on the deck of the titanic in her in her performance and there was a full orchestra and there was wind blowing and dramatic lighting and elliot smith came out for his segment in sort of an ill-fitting white suit all by himself with an acoustic guitar looking like on this vast stage as though he'd maybe gotten lost yeah. somewhere to, on his way to the bathroom and played beautifully but there was just this, this sort of complete Contrast of showbiz cultures going on there, and then of course, inevitably, Celine won the Oscar, and I had that feeling of like even when we get close to (laughs) them, you know, when there's some recognition, of course, logically, the powers of mainstream showbiz win and flatten you, and so I kind of nurtured a a little bruised feeling about that night, and when I came around to thinking about writing about Celine, that was one of the first things that came to mind, but. The funny thing is that I found out later that Céline and uh, Elliot Smith had had an encounter backstage where she dropped by his dressing room and gave him an enormous hug and said, you must be so nervous, I know you're not used to this kind of thing, and treated him very nicely. And for the rest of his, unfortunately, short life, whenever people mention Céline Dion or, or... him having met her He would kind of bristle immediately to her defense And talk about what a wonderful woman she was So, Which was one of those nice moments that, Very moving to me really of, of those streams kind of crossing And realizing that the humanity of these people Actually does defeat what, mm-hmm. With the, the roles we cast them in Symbolically in culture Right, how much more convenient for us If Celine Dion were a in
0: totally inhuman punching bag um, <laughs> What's wonderful about your book is that not only does she turn out to be a a decent human being in that anecdote, which is wonderfully told in the book, uh, she turns out to be vastly more. I mean, she sort of rearranges your whole notion of what taste is in some ways. It's whole the the internalized hierarchies or implicit hierarchies that you were dealing with as a music critic get rearranged the more you learn about her. Let me find a way into that by saying... You know, to the extent that kitsch is is cultural product that appears to come from nowhere and is intended to be sold to everyone, everyone, everywhere, and is sort of the free society's expression of its own inner totalitarianism, um, uh, to the extent that that's true, <laughs> we got a total gasp and a, a t- total incredulity, um, which is wonderful. There'll be q and A Q&A later. Um, the truth is she herself does not come from nowhere In fact, she comes from a, a very specific cultural milieu Explain what that is and explain how that informed her work I, that's a, I, mean, that's a, I, I have finally read the book, Carl It is a tremendously good book, it really is Thank you And it hit, the rubber hits the road right away But it really hits the road, I, I felt When you start talking about what Quebec means to her And what she means to
2: Quebec yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to summarize as kind of a whole narrative of her rising up as a as a child star in Quebec and, and you know, with a great deal of resistance in some ways from um, lots of the population of Quebec and then reaching, you know, at this stage in her career and quite, for quite a while now being one of Quebec's most successful cultural exports and in some ways carrying the music industry of Quebec in, in many ways. Um, but I think the thing that, that's significant to me um, and that was important for me, I felt, to, to communicate to an American readership particularly, but also a global readership that does not think of Cillian as having come from anywhere, is that I think it's important to the narrative of all artistic workers and and culture makers, we need to know where they're coming from and that we, under, we actually filter people's work much more than we realize, I think, through our understanding of their context and when their context reads, as Quebec does to much of North America I think, as a bit of a blank slate with a few you know colorful attributes thrown in, it's hard for people to understand and, the, and that creates that feeling of phoniness so just try and explain the way that the period that Céline came up through as a period of nationalist cultural ferment in Quebec, as a period when Quebec was modernizing from what had been a kind of variety show, kind of popular culture of the you know, 50s and 60s um, and 70s to some degree, and, and then transforming into um, a sort of auteurist culture in a, in a new way, and the way that she straddles... Those grounds and the way that Quebec populism and Quebec politics tie into her sense of populism and her sense of herself as a representative of some kind of sort of working class, you know, not entirely urban values and the things that she represents and the aspirationalism as well that she represents and the ways in which, you know, sort of ways that are actually kind of similar to what you might understand in America through African American R and B culture, where signs of success and affluence are actually celebrated as a sense of having come up hmm. from from below all of those things are there in Celine's narrative in a way that I think are opaque to a lot of oh, our yeah. listeners. Yeah. one of
3: my favorite passages in your book is where you describe this outburst that Celine had on American television after Hurricane Katrina, where she sort of openly wept and seemed totally discombobulated and defended looters in New Orleans, saying something like, "Let them touch those things, you know, that, that they never get to have nice things." Uh, and then she was asked, prompted by Larry King to sing, and then you know, volleyed, like it just seemed deranged on American television. <laughs> like, who is this? white lady, like, what is she doing? And, and, you know, to read this chapter and see kind of the connection that Montreal feels with this, you know, sort of fellow French city in North America that failed to preserve its French culture in the same way as Montreal, the, the kind of class politics implicit in her narrative, to me it was utterly eye-opening. Um, I feel like Steve's questions, though, are letting you skirt the question. You set out to write this book about... Hating this music, right about trying to understand your own taste, trying to understand what you personally abhorred and why, and then you are an incredibly sympathetic and subtle critic, so you had to put yourself in all these possible ways of understanding her but But tell
2: our listeners where you came out well, you know I mean at this point you know with the with the publication of this new edition, it feels like a rounding of that process, but it also means that I've sort of been living with Cillian for seven years or so <laughs> so I find it hard now to even say what my relationship is to her. I felt at the end of the book that what had happened is that um, I'd certainly come to understand where she stood as a figure in showbiz and what kind of work she was doing and realizing that that has a kind of enormous history of this kind of big sentimental music made in in North American pop and it often isn't the stuff that gets canonized and enthroned. And coming to put her in that place... (sighs) made her much more assimilable to me. And at the end, what I felt like was that I came to appreciate a lot of her music, but not all of it. Some of it still seemed kind of not sure-footed to me and a little awkward. Um, but a lot of it is really beautifully produced, and you kind of have to dig into the catalog. And especially the French catalog, actually, like, is a bit of a cut above the English one. So I, so I became sort of a partial fan. Um, but I also became really attached to her, I felt... As kind of a character um, That she, you know, from what I had found Kind of indecipherable She actually became really endeared to me As, you know, in, actually in her misunderstoodness And all of these things as well As, as just kind of a sense of um, A sense of a, a kind of brave Get out there, be yourself Be a, be your biggest self character in pop culture And that, and that really um, became my attachment But I think that one of the things that's important doing this kind of exercise, you know, one of the the cheap answer would be to be, then I came to completely appreciate her and I'm a big fan and mm-hmm. all of these things that I think that that's a little bit, you know, a lot of what the book talks about is how who we are in our identities and how we form ourselves kind of determines in many ways um, the things that we become a fan of. And it seems to me a little bit a little bit like cultural imperialism, to believe you can just delve in and then you're just like the people who adopted her more instinctively and that kind of thing. And I, I think that I can appreciate her while maintaining that distance and being like, yeah, that's not where I come from, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, to, to move beyond Céline, if such a thing is possible, <laughs> au-delà de Céline, um, the, 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 the thing I took away from your book that's really influenced, I think, the way I work as a critic and also just experience culture as a consumer is this idea of taste as a kind of defense mechanism a cultural defense mechanism and a psychological defense mechanism and the way that and I wrote this down because it was such a good quote critical authority depends on the power to exclude you say right and you also quote I think Paul Valerie saying every like is made of a thousand dislikes and that is just something that comes up so much in every conversation about culture that you have and once you start to become aware of it in the way that this book made me aware of it it really does Sort of change your identification with what it is you love. I wonder if you could speak to that at all, or if other other people have told you that that has stayed with them.
2: Um, to some degree, yeah. I mean, I mean, you've just stated it really well. So in some ways, I feel redundant <laughs> responding. Um, but yeah, that sense of you know that we're not aware of when we're sort of, especially in adolescence, I think forming ourselves culturally, but throughout life, and there's been sociological research backing this up, and that kind of thing. That that there's a tendency of using cultural objects to define who you want to be and who you don't want to be. And those things have deep class significance and they, and they change from place to place. So those attachments mean really differently and over time it changes. You know, When the body of really big sociological work was done on this, that kind of fell into conventional highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow places and those things corresponded quite closely to, to class position. Um, but now there's kind of a new cosmopolitan, you know, Brow mixing culture that is actually a new sort of sign of sophistication. So you need to have a little bit of you know maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of World Wrestling Federation and a little bit of you know Mm -hmm. a little bit of Japanese manga and you know a bit of chufo and a bit of and a bit of heavy metal or whatever it is that makes you seem like you're really curating your your selfhood.
0: Right. (laughs) right. Yeah. Nope. No brow eclecticism is yeah exactly defining and
2: so that so these things change over time and and one of the things that's clever about them is that they keep moving so as not to be recognizable as as blatant plays to be admired, mm-hmm. but in some subconscious level, I think that that is what happens and it' and so what was really valuable about going through this process for me was to challenge those things in myself and to realize that all of these things have a story behind them. Go, well, go, go. okay,
3: one final question. is: you sort of say at the en- in your afterward that you've written to this new edition um, that some of the hierarchies of taste that you were writing about that felt still pertinent and pungent uh, in 2007 or in a book coming out in 2007 seemed to have collapsed so completely that, that maybe a teenager growing up today doesn't have the same experience of finding that loathing Celine Dion could help him, you know, help his identity cohere as he suffered the slings and arrows of high school, right? Um, and I, I wonder, do you think do you think it's really Dunzo, that, that mode of creating your cultural self?
2: No, I, I mean, I think that, I think this is an evergreen thing. Like, I think this is the way taste has worked for time immemorial and always kind of will. But, um, but the, but the digital availability of all culture simultaneously all the time and as a way to grow up I think that that means that the tribal codes that people roughly our age grew up with um, aren't operating the same way and people are growing up with a different kind of eclecticism and and yeah and also that music particularly might be playing a different and lesser role um, compared to one's allegiances to different kind of technological (laughs) platforms and all these kinds of things so I think that one of the things that I felt was the kind of music snob um, going through some kind of enlightenment narrative that's in this book um, might not play out in the same way in mm-hmm. the future and that, and that these, these things are all in motion right now. But I think we're also just like in an incredibly confusing time oh, about how things work this way and so I, you know, I feel like maybe this, this book was a little bit of an epitaph to how things had worked for 50 years Absolutely
0: Carl, you have helped me locate the one flaw in your book which is that we could talk about it forever. But we only have 10 minutes, and we've exceeded that vastly. Carl Wilson lived with Celine Dion for eight years and lived to tell about it. A remarkable feat in and of itself. Carl, who did the dishes? Um,
2: uh, Celine it first, and then I I volunteered. (laughs) Um, Tell me the title of your book again. It's Let's Talk About Love. The new subtitle is Why Other People Have
0: Such Bad Taste. Wonderful. People... Sorry, I blanked for a second. People should go by it. Um, Carl, will you do us a favor and stick around and endorse? Left. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dane. What do you have?
1: Uh, Special Canadian version of my name. (laughs) with Extra (laughs) Nas. Um, All right, I have to consult my notes for this endorsement because it's got a lot of proper names that are somewhat new to me. But I'm going to endorse a writer, an Angolan writer, that I discovered at this festival, at the Blue Met Festival, the other night. I happened to pick up some of his books at the book fair upstairs. I heard him do a reading. I talked to him afterwards. Really interesting guy. And I have two of his books that I haven't really started yet because I've been doing all this stuff for the podcast but I'm excited to have discovered him his he goes by one name share style and his name is Onjaki he's a young man from Angola and he has written a couple of novels I think he wrote a children's book he apparently made a documentary about Angola and apparently in the last 10 years or so that I haven't been keeping up with Lusophone literature, he's become this phenom in Lusophone, that is Portuguese-speaking um, world literature. So uh, he has two books that are for sale upstairs or that you can find online. One is called Good Morning Comrades. One is The new one is called Grandma 19 and The Soviet Secret. And his name, again, is Onjaki from Angola.
0: Amazing. I will seek that out. Um, Julia, what do you have?
3: Uh, well, I also have a, an endorsement that I discovered here in Montreal, And I'm a little bit tentative about giving it because I think that this endorsement is kind of the equivalent of going to Anaheim and then claiming to have discovered Walt Disney. Um, (laughs) But I was uh, walking around Montreal and looking in various galleries and shops, and I came across some drawings by a man named Norman McLaren. Uh, And so then... (laughs) Okay. All right, I'm not going to get thrown out of the room for endorsing Walt Disney. Good. (laughs) Um, So Norman McLaren as far as I've learned from subsequent intensive obsessive Googling over the last 48 hours, is essentially like the grandfather of Canadian animation. Uh, He was a Scot originally, but uh, settled here in Canada, and basically did really interesting avant-garde animation work, producing these beautiful short films in the 40s and 50s that looked like stuff you'd find, in the 70s almost. I mean, he seemed very far ahead of his time. He also did a series of incredible movies. He won an Oscar for Best Documentary for his piece Neighbors. But you can find a lot of his work on YouTube. I mean, there are these very short, beautiful, experimental films. And one I particularly loved uh, that I was watching on YouTube this weekend is called Horizontal Lines. And it's um, sort of a mesmerizing symphony of moving lines. It almost looks like they're swimming laps against each other on a sea of colors. Uh, and it's just gorgeous. So
2: Norman McLaren... Julia, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Carl, thanks so much for sticking around. What do you have? Um, thank you. I, this is going to be a bit of geographical and um, product placement log rolling, but, um, but I, I, there are a couple of people from Montreal who contributed to the new edition of the book. One is Jonathan Stern, who's a professor at McGill, and the other is Owen Pallett who is a musician um, originally operating under the name Final Fantasy and now under his own name and well-known as a collaborator with Arcade Fire. Um, But a former Torontonian who now lives here. And Owen wrote a very charming little essay for me, but I want to endorse... Owen's new album, um, In Conflict. Um, partly because I can't write about it for Slate because at this point, um, him having contributed to this project and this kind of thing, um, as a reviewer, it's a bit of a conflict. But but this album is, I think, kind of a breakthrough. Of those of you who know Owen's work, it's, it's built on sort of violin looping as a solo artist, kind of building up whole kind of chamber orchestra style arrangements on his own. Um, but this album shifts a little bit away from that It returns him to work with a band that he started working with in Toronto when he was very young called Les Mouches. And so there's this live band feel, but there's also an orchestra. He doesn't pick up the violin very often in it, but it kind of breaks through to a new level of emotional frankness and um, a, a lot of treatment of both um, queer issues, um, transgender issues things that he and friends have been through but also I think just kind of a coming of age in some ways as this kind of prodigy artist reaching a point where he's suddenly finding a more direct voice and and the album is to me incredibly moving and and also virtuosic in the way that all of his work is Um, so I really um, think that people should seek out In Conflict which I believe is coming out um, this week Hmm. in Canada at least and I think in the States as well Fantastic, thank you so much
0: all right, well, it says in my uh, Word document here, in all caps, it says, This is not a suck up. <laughs> but my two, it's true, my two favorite political philosophers are Canadians, it turns out. The fact that I notice about them every now and then, and I think it's distinctive of them for the reason that I think you need to be close to the pathologies of the United States. But not of them, in order to properly diagnose the current political situation. By current, I mean broadly construed. They wrote really their best work between fifty and thirty years ago. Anyway, the two are uh, C. B. McPherson and G. A. Cohen. That is a very happy moment. That, yeah, I mean they're just they're both such remarkable, original, clear. Men of the left, right? I mean, they're, they're almost a dying breed. In America, you wring your hands and apologize. You cringe in apology until you disappear beneath the surface of the earth for being, you know, left of center. Not, not, you know, I mean, God forbid you're actually left, and you don't even say the word center. You have to say the word center in America as soon as you say the word left. Um, but apparently not here in Pinko, Canada. Um, LAUGHTER I have endorsed G.A. Cohen in the past. One of the reasons I came to know his work is that he's one of the chief explicators and critics of the American libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick. Uh, McPherson I don't believe I've endorsed before in part because I just don't want anyone else to get a hold of it. None of my competitors to have this magic stash of – it just – Searingly brilliant insights into political philosophy and social reality Um, My favorite book of McPherson's is probably his most famous uh, Is the political theory of possessive individualism from Hobbes to Locke And for those of you who don't care about these kinds of things I can hear your brain going to sleep when I read that title However, what I want to say is that his analysis of Hobbes and Locke are so gripping They feel he implants a sense of intellectual mystery in your head so, uh, that you, and you want that mystery solved so badly That you read these things almost like gripping thrillers And he gets to the solution I mean, he really says How could Locke have believed this? Like, how could anyone believe this? And not only that I mean, Locke is the foundational philosopher of our fucking culture It's not like he's just some guy who thought some stuff And maybe to pass you know, 90 minutes in a seminar We should think about it I mean, he is he's literally the thinker Whose words flow into the Declaration of Independence And there's something essentially false about those words Or the concepts behind them There are many ringingly true and beautiful And almost transcendentally beautiful things about them But there are many false things about them And we live those falsehoods in the United States So it was an act of, to my mind, total revelatory genius For someone to have reread Locke With the degree of originality that he did So that is my endorsement here in Canada
3: That sounds awesome
0: Uh, I think we did a show Seems that way Dana, thank you so much Thank you, Steve. Julia, a total delight. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show. Many more to follow, I hope. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Culture Fest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Scheckman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, and this week, blessedly, Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. <clears throat> oh, say goodbye to me,
3: my darling. My time here is almost through, for I am packing up and leaving. apartment rests above the country's largest oil slick the air's too long been my undoing dust and mold make me sick the sewage plant that's always spewing dust and blocks from this park bench some nights it smells like cherry candy just to cover up the
0: stench but montreal